Is addiction the same as being dependent on a drug, or does addiction cause drug dependence? What if you think you're being poisoned, and I check, say, an arsenic level? How do I know if that level is truly positive, or if it's a false positive? How do we know how much of a drug that we take actually gets into our system? Is there any way we can increase the amount of drug we absorb? Once it's absorbed, how do we describe how it affects our body? If you want answers, keep listening. This is a Poison Lab mini-episode. So I think we have a problem. What is that? Well, I want to make sure everyone's on the same page when we're talking about poisoning, so sometimes I have to dive into some heady medical concepts, but it takes away from the poisoning of the show when I have to spend 10 minutes talking about these random topics. Why don't you just explain them in a mini-episode that they can reference later? You mean like the mini-episode we're in right now? What? Oh my, my mind is blown. This is so meta. I know, we're super edgy. Anyways, today I want to talk about five important topics that are pretty relevant to poisoning and explain them so any listener can understand, medical or non-medical. First, we'll talk about how we know whether or not our tests that we do on you are accurate. If I'm screening you for coronavirus and it's negative, how do I know that's not a false negative or flu tests or screening for thallium toxicity, anything like that? Then we're going to cover some concepts about how our body affects drugs, pharmacokinetics, and we'll talk a little bit about something called bioavailability, and we'll talk about how the drugs affect our body, defining some things like agonists, partial agonists, antagonists, reverse agonists, lots of fun words you can use to impress your friends. The last thing we're going to talk about, one that's really important to toxicology, is the distinction between addiction to a substance, which is the relationship between the user and the substance, and dependence on a substance, which is the relationship between the substance and the user's biology. Brian, do you think our listeners will care about these topics? Well, I don't really know. I guess if we think about caring about these topics as a disease, I could do a test for it. I could ask a listener to their face, hey, do you care about this? And their answer, yes or no, would be the test. Their true feelings would be the disease. They might tell me they care because I'm standing right in front of them, but in truth, they don't, and they're just being polite. So that would be a false positive. Or maybe they didn't understand the question, and they do care about these topics, but they replied no. That would be a false negative. I don't know what the sensitivity and specificity are for asking a listener if they care about these topics. What do you mean by sensitivity and specificity? Sensitivity and specificity are how we figure out how good tests are at diagnosing diseases. The definitions seem to confuse people. Sensitivity means how sensitive is a test to pick up a disease, meaning how often in people who actually have the disease I'm looking for, will the test I do for the disease be positive? I know, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Let's say I have 100 people and they all have the flu and I do a flu test on all 100 of them. If only 95 of them test positive, that would be 95% sensitive. Specificity is the opposite. It's the yin to the sensitivity yang, meaning how often is the test negative in those who don't have the disease? 
So let's say I have another 100 people who don't have the flu, and I run a flu test on all of them, but five of them still test positive for the flu. Those are false positives, but that means it's 95% specific, meaning of those who don't have the disease, 95% of the time, it will not be positive. So here's what's wild. Sensitivity and specificity apply to patients who do or do not have the disease, which makes them not very useful because when we're actually treating patients, we rarely know whether you do or don't have the disease. You're sort of like Schrodinger's patient. You might have it and you might not, and you exist in both states. The only thing we can know for sure is whether the test we did for the disease is positive or negative. So we use sensitivities and specificities, which are identified in other studies where they use multiple forms of tests to diagnose a disease, to create positive and negative predictive values for our tests. Meaning, if the test is positive, what percentage of the time does that mean you have the disease? I like to think of it as a game of guess who. Let's say there's a room full of people and supermans in the crowd. You have to find him in order to help him save the world. One thing we could do would be start looking at everyone with black hair. That would be a sensitive test. 100% of supermans have black hair. But so do a lot of other people. So there's a lot of false positives. In fact, there's 10 people in the room with black hair. So even though it's a very sensitive test, because 100% of supermans have black hair, it has a low positive predictive value. Only one out of the 10 positives is actually Superman, which would be a 10% positive predictive value. So how good a test is at predicting a disease is actually dependent on how often it's absent in those who don't have the disease and how often it's present in those with the disease. So now I've narrowed it down at least to 10 people. Now I could maybe do other tests that are more specific. For instance, Superman is invulnerable to bullets. So I guess the next thing we could do is find all the people with black hair and start shooting them in the foot. We don't want to, okay? But we have to. We have to find Superman. If you're not Superman, it's going to hurt when you get shot in the foot. So the test of bullet invulnerability is a very specific test to being Superman and won't be present in those who aren't Superman. This is the rationale behind a lot of screening and confirming for diseases. Let's take the example of prostate cancer. We want to identify it early so we can prevent its spread and mortality, but we don't want to do biopsies on everyone's prostate because that's pretty invasive, kind of like getting shot in the foot. We can do a simpler test called a prostate-specific antigen, which is a really sensitive test, so it's elevated in almost everyone who has prostate cancer. But it's also elevated in a lot of other people, so it has a low positive predictive value. Having an elevated prostate-specific antigen doesn't mean you have prostate cancer. But that's a good group to start looking in in order to figure out who I should do a biopsy in. And because it's so frequently elevated in those who have prostate cancer, if it's not elevated at all, I can reasonably assume that I don't need to go looking for prostate cancer in you. Quick disclaimer here, I work with poisons, not prostates. This could be totally off on how they do screening and confirmation of prostate cancer now. But fundamentally, the idea is the same. Okay, so that's sensitivity, specificity, negative and positive predictive values. The long and short is if I have somebody who I think is poisoned, I shouldn't use an insensitive test for that poisoning to screen for the disease because it might not be present in those who are poisoned. 
Eh, we might talk about all this stuff later. Let's move on to the next topic. Brian, I have a problem. I keep taking Tylenol, but none of it is absorbing into my sturdy metal frame. Why are you taking Tylenol? You can't even feel pain. Why do people open the refrigerator multiple times throughout the day expecting there to be different food in it? Sometimes it's nice to pretend. Okay, I guess you have a point there. Well, Toxo, it sounds to me like you have a bioavailability problem, where none of the drug is getting absorbed into your body. Now, your issue is that you have no bio. The drug is available, but you're not a biologic system. What about for humans? Do you ever wonder what happens when you actually take a drug? How does it get into your body? Well, after you take a drug, you don't have just tablets floating around in your bloodstream, so something has to happen to it first, and that would be it dissolves in the liquid in your stomach, sort of like sugar cubes dissolving into a cup of coffee. Once it's dissolved, the individual chemicals are floating around, and they're free to get absorbed into the body. But does 100% of that drug get absorbed? Are you able to use every little piece of it? Think of it like an ear of corn. I know this is kind of gross, but I think it relays a pretty good point. So sometimes people might ingest some corn and notice that some of it, well, passes right on through them. Well, you could say that the bioavailability of that corn was the amount of kernels ingested minus the amount of kernels that passed right on through them. And this is true for drugs too. Some of it just passes right through you and doesn't get absorbed. This is called the fraction excreted unchanged. Then, how do we figure out how much of the absorbed drug actually has an effect? When it does get absorbed into the body, a small amount of it gets metabolized in the cells that are absorbing it from the stomach and GI system, and then the rest of it goes through what we call first-pass metabolism, which we call because the liver gets the first pass at metabolizing all that drug. Your liver is one of our clearing organs. It contains tons of enzymes, many of them called cytochrome oxidase enzymes, that love to chew up drugs. So, when you absorb a drug from the GI tract, all the blood vessels from the GI system go straight to the liver before it has any chance to get to your heart, your brain, your lungs, anywhere. So, you could say the total amount of drug that's available to the bio system is your bioavailability. And that is dependent on how much is excreted unchanged how much is metabolized by the gut wall, and how much is metabolized by the liver. Let's take an example of the drug naloxone. I think everybody's pretty familiar with this drug. It's now over-the-counter and can be used to treat opioid overdoses. Well, what would happen if I drank a dose of naloxone instead of giving it IV? Well, it turns out, nothing. See, the bioavailability of naloxone is only 3%. And it's not because it doesn't get absorbed. A lot of it is absorbed. But its first pass effect is significant. So about 97% of the drug is metabolized in the liver before it's able to reach systemic circulation like the rest of my body. Meaning if I take it orally, only 3% of that dose is going to get into my system and reach, say, the brain. So if you had somebody who was overdosed on opioids and you dumped a vial of naloxone into their mouth, absolutely nothing would happen. That's why we have to give it intravenously. Because when you give a drug via a route that's not the gastric tract, you can bypass this first pass effect. So if you give a drug rectally, 
Two of the rectal veins actually go right into systemic circulation, so you don't have to go through the liver. If you give it buccally, which is in the mouth, the cheek, or, or even sublingually under the tongue, many of those veins will go directly into systemic circulation. And if you encephalate or snort a drug, that can also lead to increased bioavailability by bypassing first pass. And of course, the most reliable method would be parenteral, which means giving it intravenous or intramuscular, because then you're basically shooting it right into the bloodstream and you don't have to worry about the liver. So this is important when we're talking about how drugs affect the body. Sometimes you can take a drug with another drug that inhibits its liver and gut metabolism and significantly boosts the effect that you're seeing. And that could lead to more toxicity or more therapeutic effects depending on what you're trying. A lot of times these biological pathways are taken advantage of by amateur pharmacologists who are trying to enhance the effects of the recreational drugs they're taking. In fact, maybe you've heard of the drug dimethyltryptamine. DMT. They call it businessman's lunch because you smoke it and it causes very extreme hallucinogenic effects for about 20 minutes before it's chewed up by the body. And then I guess you get to go back to work as a businessman because you were on your lunch break. I guess that's why it's called businessman's lunch. Honestly, I, I don't know where that came from. Dimethyltryptamine looks exactly like one of our normal neurotransmitters, serotonin. So it gets chewed up by the molecule that eats serotonin, which is monoamine oxidase. Now, maybe you've heard of another drug called ayahuasca. This is a drug that's been used for cultural rituals in South America for many years and has recently picked up a pretty significant drug tourism trade where people go down to South America for these ayahuasca experiences. Well, the active ingredient in ayahuasca is dimethyltryptamine, the same drug that when smoked lasts about 20 minutes. But ayahuasca causes six to eight hours of profoundly debilitating hallucinations. So why does that happen? Well, it's because ayahuasca is actually a combination of two drugs. One, dimethyltryptamine, and two, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So it's a concoction made from multiple plants. One plant contains DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and the other plant contains a compound that inhibits the metabolism of DMT. DMT is normally smoked in its pure form because it's not able to be absorbed through the gastric tract. Almost 100% of it is metabolized by monoamine oxidase, so its oral bioavailability is almost 0%. However, when combined with monoamine oxidase inhibitors in ayahuasca, it increases the bioavailability and the half-life of the drug by preventing it from being broken down, as well as probably significantly increasing the risk of toxicity, because monoamine oxidase inhibitors are no joke. They can cause some serious problems. So the route that a drug is given or what it's given with plays a key role in the amount of drug that's available for the body to use. It's also why many people who are using drugs for recreational or euphoric purposes will inject or snort or even use this method called plugging, where I believe they insert it rectally to increase the bioavailability. If you spend a little bit of time on some online drug forums for research, you will find out that people are unafraid to expose themselves via really any route to drugs. All right, so that's how drugs get into the body. Now... What actually happens when they're in there? How do we describe the relationship between a drug and the receptor? I'm going to introduce three terms here. An agonist, a partial agonist, and an antagonist. If you think of a drug receptor like a light switch, an agonist will turn the light all the way on. A partial agonist will only turn the light up to 60% brightness. It's like a dimmer switch. And an antagonist, 
Well, it prevents anyone from turning the light on at all. So it's like putting a piece of tape over an off light switch. Not the same as an inverse agonist, which would actually turn the light off. Let's use the example of nicotine and the anti-smoking drug varenicycline, or Chantix. So nicotine is a full agonist. When you inhale tobacco smoke or from a vape pen and hopefully don't get horrible lung injury, well, you get a big hit of nicotine, and that stimulates your nicotine receptor. And the more nicotine you inhale, because it's a full agonist, the more stimulation of the receptor you'll get. But varenicycline, or Chantix, is a partial agonist, meaning it has a ceiling effect. Let's say the ceiling dose is around 2 milligrams. Well, if I keep adding on drug, I won't really get much more of an effect than that 2 milligram dose. But say with nicotine, if I take 100 times more nicotine, I'll have 100 times the nicotine effect. But with varenicycline, if I have 100 milligrams of varenicycline, I'll probably still only get around that 2 milligram effect. But it doesn't mean that varenicycline isn't a very potent drug, meaning it has a very high affinity for the nicotine receptor. In fact, it's higher than nicotine itself. So when I have this partial agonist varenicycline around, it sits in the nicotine receptor. If I smoke a cigarette, well, none of the nicotine from that cigarette can get into the receptor. So even though that nicotine could turn it on even higher, the varenicycline keeps it at about that 2 milligram experience. Let's think of it like I am the drug and my thermostat is the drug receptor. A full agonist is like me right now. I can turn my thermostat to whatever level I want. I can keep driving it up, up, up the more times I press the button. I know, it's pretty impressive. A partial agonist is like eight-year-old me. The thermostat's a little bit too high for me to reach, so I can press it and I can maybe shift it to the 60-degree mark, but that's as high as I can reach and I can't get it to go any higher, no matter how hard I try. And then an antagonist would be like my dad when I was growing up, who wouldn't let me touch the thermostat at all, so I couldn't affect it. And we didn't talk much about them, but an inverse agonist would be a drug that actually turns the thermostat down. These are the normal terms that we use to describe how drugs affect the receptors that they interplay with. Okay, I think we have time to cover one more concept that's pretty important to toxicology. And that's the relationship between substance and man addiction, and physiologic dependence. Brian, I can't stop watching new episodes of NCIS. Am I addicted? Well, that's a good question, Toxo. I, I don't think so, but addiction is kind of a nuanced word, and there's been debate over what the definition should be, and frequently addiction is confused with physiologic dependence. So let's kind of break each down. So addiction is more or less defined by the relationship between the user and the drug. Some of the key factors are loss of control around use of the substance and suffering negative consequences from using it. If someone is taking a drug and experiencing consequences in their life because of it and are still unable to stop, oftentimes we'd consider that addiction. Let's take a look at it through the lens of one of the most well-known addictive substances. Let's say we have someone who's using opioids. We'll say they're not prescribed to them, and they're spending all of their money on it, maybe risking their job and hiding things from their family, or maybe even engaging in risky behaviors like injecting the drug or sharing needles, which can cause disease, but they still can't stop taking it. They've lost control over their ability to use the drug. We would probably consider this addiction. 
Their brain has become rewired where this is now the main motivational reward pathway and creates them to want to keep taking more of the drug. And then eventually, because usually this is not medically supervised, they can get an overdose of this drug and end up dying. Now, many people can realize this and may want to stop using opioids because it's, well, a chronic and frequently fatal disease. But there's another complicating factor. Once you've been using opioids, your body doesn't like it when you stop. You develop physiologic dependence. This is different than addiction, but often coexists with it. Some people who are on opioids and supervised by a medical team might develop physiologic dependence, but it does not mean that they're addicted. The addiction is defined by the relationship of the user and the drug, not the relationship of the user's biology. So physiologic dependence is the natural process where our body changes in response to a stimulus. See, we're living, breathing biologic systems. When we introduce something from our environment, our body can adapt and change. Usually the body will make an adaption in an equal and opposite direction. This is called homeostasis, and it's probably the only reason that you're alive right now. Let's take an example of salt. You need a certain amount of salt in your body to live. If you have too much, you'll have a seizure and die. And if you have too little, well, pretty much the same thing will happen. Now, let's say you have a really, really salty diet. Well, your body will start to make changes to start excreting more salt. And that way you can maintain your salt levels at a constant healthy level. But we don't want to excrete too much salt because then we would go too low and have the same problems. So once our salt levels fall below a certain threshold, we have a trigger to stop excreting salt. This is called a negative feedback cycle, and they're very important in keeping you moving. In fact, probably the most fatal thing in biology is a positive feedback cycle. Let's say the trigger to begin retaining more salt was eating more salt. Well, it wouldn't take long for a salty diet to lead to super high salt levels and eventual death. This is why homeostasis is so important, and the body tends to do it indiscriminately, regardless of what the exposure is, including drugs. This is why taking a drug eventually makes you less sensitive to the drug, for most of them. Could you imagine if taking a drug sensitized you and made the next dose even more potent and even more? Well, you'd pretty much immediately overdose on everything. Okay, let's look at physiologic dependence and opioids. This is the process where you decrease the amount of opioid receptors in your body because they're being constantly stimulated by opioids if you're chronically using them. This is the medical basis for tolerance. It's the same reason why people who drink a lot of alcohol can usually drink more than those who don't. They have downregulated the receptors where alcohol works. And it's the same reason why eating lots and lots of sugar can lead to diabetes. Sugar releases insulin, and constant insulin exposure downregulates the insulin receptors on our cells, causing insulin insensitivity and diabetes. So with chronic use, you decrease your opioid receptors, and then you need to take more and more opioid to get the same effect out of the few opioid receptors that you have left. Then, when opioids leave the body, you have fewer opioid receptors than when you started, and now you have no opioid stimulus. So now, whatever effects you were getting from the drug, we're now going to experience the exact opposite effects from the absence of the drug. That's right. There's no free lunches in biology. This is called withdrawal. And some withdrawal can even be deadly. Let's take the example of alcohol and benzodiazepines. Normally, they make you sleepy. And let's say you normally have five sleepy receptors in your brain. Well, if you chronically expose yourself to benzos and alcohol, now you downregulate those receptors and you only have, say, two sleepy receptors. Then, when you take away the stimulus, which is alcohol or benzodiazepines, 
I'm left with a system that's barely able to induce any sleepiness in the brain. I only have those two receptors, and they can barely work. So I get hyper-excitatory states, and this can lead to seizures, as well as excited deliriums called delirium tremens from unbalanced excitation in the brain. And these can be fatal. With opioids, fortunately, withdrawal is not life-threatening, but it's severely uncomfortable. Your skin feels like it's crawling, and you can have diarrhea, nausea, vomiting... And of course, opioids can make you sleepy, so you can't really sleep when you're withdrawing from them. You might have heard this called dope sickness, but it's one of the reasons why opioid users continue to use opioids, to prevent this uncomfortable feeling. It's only one part of treating the entire addiction disease. In fact, I've heard some addiction specialists say that detoxing someone is the easiest part. Keeping them off is the hard part. So as you can see, addiction is the relationship that leads a user to continually use a drug. Physiologic dependence is the biologic effect that occurs from continual drug use. While they coexist together, they are not one and the same. Often you have to treat physiologic dependence in order to get the user to a healthy enough state to be able to address the underlying addiction. But some people who are on opioids for regular medical purposes will become physiologic dependent and not develop addiction. So I think it's an important distinction to make. Okay, we covered some pretty heady concepts today, so thanks for listening along. Here's your rapid-fire review of everything we learned today. Tests are not perfect. You can evaluate how good a test is with things like sensitivity, specificity, negative, and positive predictive values. The amount of drug that gets into the body is dependent on how it's given and what it's given with. Once it's in the body, if it fully activates a receptor, it's an agonist. If it only partially activates it, it's a partial agonist. And if it stops it from being activated, that's an antagonist. Addiction and dependence are different. Someone who is addicted might become dependent on a drug, but that's really a biologic and physiologic effect. Addiction has more to do with the relationship between the user and the substance. Okay, we'll try to do some more of these minisodes just to maybe break up the clinical poisoning cases. And I actually really want to do an episode where we dive into interesting questions about poisoning from the internet. They're usually pretty funny. Uh, But for now, I think we're going to stop here. So thanks for listening. Make sure you tune in for our next episode. You can listen to the case at the end of episode one. We'll be breaking down that poison and that case in episode two. Don't forget to follow myself and Toxo on Twitter at Lab Poison and at EM Poison Farm D. We have an Instagram at Tox underscore Talk. And you can always reach out to the show at ToxTalk1 at gmail.com. Really appreciate you listening. Hope you can tune in for the next episode. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye.